Welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. From a small town upbringing to an explosive moment in history, join us on a journey through the life and times of Timothy McVeigh, the man behind the shocking Oklahoma City bombing. This is Scarlet Tavern. Timothy McVeigh. Yep. Um, New York's finest. <laughs> so, um, I guess let's get right into it. Because this yep. is going to be a two-parter. So, we'll talk about Timothy McVeigh, a little bit of things that he was involved in or influenced him before the Oklahoma City bombing, and then we'll go kind of in-depth with the Oklahoma City bombing, the aftermath, um, some conspiracy theories, because there are a few conspiracy theories involving a president um, for this. So, uh, America's favorite president. Um, this was in the 70s, so, or 80s. Um so, you can only guess which president that is. So, here we go. Timothy McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York. The only son and the second of three children of his Irish-American parents, Noreen Mildred Mickey Hill and William McVeigh. In 1866... McVeigh's great-great-grandfather, Edward McVeigh, emigrated from Ireland and settled in uh, the Niagara County. It's been a long day. After McVeigh's parents divorced when he was 10 years old, he was raised by his father in Pendleton, New York. McVeigh claimed to have been a target of bullying at school, and he took refuge in a fantasy world where he imagined retaliating against the bullies. If only he had D&D in his life back then. Maybe oh, yeah. we would not have had the Oklahoma City bombing. At the end of his life, he stated his belief that the United States government is the ultimate bully. And we'll definitely get into that. Um, most who knew McVeigh remember him as being very shy and withdrawn. While a few described him as an outgoing and playful child who withdrew as an adolescent. He is said to have had only one girlfriend as an adolescent. He later told journalists that he did not have any idea how to impress girls. I mean, that's a problem a lot of us have. I'm, I'm shocked I was able to impress Pam. Me too. Shut up. <laughs> While in high school, McVeigh became interested in computers and hacked into government computer systems on his Commodore 64 under the handle The Wanderer. You remember the Commodore 64. First of all, I'm not that old. And second of all, I actually do know what the competition is. <laughs> Biggest computer you guys have ever seen. Um, taken from the song by Dion DiMucci. In his senior year, he was named most promising computer programmer of Starpoint Central High School, as well as most talkative by his classmates as a joke as he did not speak much but had relatively poor grades until his 1986 graduation. 
Um, he was introduced to firearms by his grandfather. McVeigh told people of his wish to become a gun shop owner and sometimes took firearms to school to impress his classmates. This was before school shootings were a thing. About to say. Yeah. He became intensely interested in gun rights as well as the Second Amendment to the, to the United States Constitution after he graduated from high school and read magazines such as Soldier of Fortune. He briefly attended Bryant and Stratton College before dropping out. After dropping out of college, McVeigh worked as an armored car guard and was noted by co-workers as being obsessed with guns. One co-worker recalled an instance when McVeigh came to work looking like Pancho Villa as he was wearing bandoliers. That's funny. <laughs> it's so it's so it's so surreal. So just to let everyone know, I'm from the exact same area as Timothy. Not exactly. I was born a, a county below him. Timothy McVeigh was born and raised in Niagara County. I was born and raised in Erie County. But as Caleb knows, because he's been up here to visit, that's that's not really saying much. They're they're literally yeah. right next to each other. So he's gone. Like he went to Lockport, Pendleton. I was just like, oh my god, I was just driving there the other day. I I know exactly all these places he's talking about. Yeah. In May 1988, at the age of 20, McVeigh enlisted in the United States Army and attended basic training and AIT, Advanced Individual Training, at the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. While in the military, McVeigh used much of his spare time to read about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. McVeigh was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt at a KKK rally when they were objecting a black serviceman who wore black power t-shirts around a military installation. So, that this is what you have to understand about the military. They will never do things fair. So, this... And I'm not saying what he was wearing was right and all of that. Don't get me wrong on that. But, this serviceman was wearing a black power shirt... If McVeigh wasn't allowed to wear a white power shirt, the serviceman shouldn't have been allowed to wear a black power shirt. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you're not allowed to wear any kind of shirt that's that of political. overtly, yeah, overtly political. And, I mean, two wrongs don't make a right just because he's doing it. You I mean, for all you know, yeah. you don't, you, you, you didn't see him get punished. That doesn't mean he didn't get punished. But yeah. Yeah. No, this is Typical holy yeah, holy moly! Though this is just this is, this I is can't believe start. you did that. Yeah, it really is, and we're like, whoa, we're off to a great track. His future co-conspirator Terry Nichols was his platoon guide. He and Nichols quickly got along with their similar backgrounds as well as their views in gun collecting and survivalism. The two were later stationed together at Fort Riley in Junction City, Kansas, where they met and became friends with their future accomplice Michael Fortier. McVeigh was a top-scoring gunner with a 25mm cannon, just so you guys know, that's not that hard to do, um, of the Bradley fighting vehicles used by the 1st Infantry Division and was promoted to sergeant. After being promoted, McVeigh earned a reputation for assigning undesirable work to black servicemen and using racial slurs. He was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas before being deployed on Operation Desert Storm. You know what's crazy is... Like... He was, if you think about it, like Operation Desert Storm, that's not, I mean, not really long before we started 
going and joining the service and all of that. I mean, I was four when Desert Start happened. So. Yeah, it, I, it's it's crazy because obviously there's still Desert Storm veterans out everywhere, um, and you'll see you'll see Desert Storm veterans, and they are some of the badasses. Hey, I, I will say this for a war where the United States saw, in comparison to other conflicts, relatively little conflict. Desert Storm veterans, I've met a few of them. They got some pretty crazy stories about what happened over there. It now, almost like... now, of course, this is before um, Operation Enduring Freedom and all of that that we were in, um, where, of course, after 9 11, we had crazy crazy deaths from that um i i think i posted about it on 9-11 um about the amount of deaths that there were uh where for military members but desert storm they dealt with a lot of shit um i have a friend whose dad was in desert storm he was in the army in desert storm and they they dealt with some shit Oh yeah, no. The like I said, don't get me. Even like I said, comparatively, we didn't see a lot of combat. That doesn't mean we didn't see combat. Though. Correct. So, um, as we're about to see with Timothy McVeigh's uh, war record, um, but yeah, no. It, Desert Storm was one of those when you hear it, it's like they tell you stories, and you get this like, what the heck? They one thing one vet told me is like, you had to be there to believe it. That's yeah. kind of what I heard. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about his medals here and i'm going to list all the medals and then i'm going to go through and tell you what medals actually don't mean shit um because you get medals and ribbons just for enlisting so in an interview before his execution mcveigh said they hit an iraqi tank more than 500 yards away on his first day in the war then the iraqi surrendered we i don't believe that he also decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire from 1,100 yards away. Again, don't believe that. If, you, if you're if you decapitating somebody at 1,100 yards with, with that, you need to go into sniper school. That I, I don't believe that for a second. Um, he said he was later shocked to see carnage on the road while leaving Kuwait City after U.S. troops routed the Iraq army. McVeigh received several service awards including the bronze star medal okay that's a legit medal to to receive the bronze star um he received the national defense service medal now the national defense service medal <laughs> you get that for deploying that's it uh, uh the back then you did but these days you just get it out of basic unless yeah. they, they changed that no they changed that well when uh, we um, were in you got it just yeah. going to basic yeah, so it, that thing was like one step above a participation. Yeah, because I, I have the National Defense. Obviously, the Bronze Star is a legitimate, still to this day, it is legitimate. You you have to do a heroic deed, basically, to receive the Bronze Star or be attached to a unit that did such. 
Bronstar with Valor is a her, a valorous act that you individually Bronstar, but that what I think th this is is what you described it. He was attached to a unit that did something valorous, so Correct. everybody gets a Bronstar. It's not like Timothy McVeigh was a war hero. Out, was a war hero. He just happened to be the unit that did some stuff. I mean, all he was he was part of the first infantry division in Desert Storm. They Big dealt, Red One, they that's one of the most... They did a lot of shit. Oh, yeah, that, they were, if I remember correctly... They were the front now, line. They, yeah, there was a, I don't know too, I know an initial thrust of it from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, and I believe the first infantry was part of that initial spearhead. Yeah. With the British and the French on the flanks of that, so... Yeah. But yeah, no, he would have been right there. But again, that doesn't mean McVeigh like fought Saddam Hussein in a boxing match. Or yeah, anything. and and just to put it in there, the first infantry, in, infantry division is one of the oldest we have mm -hmm. that's still in service today. It was 1917, I believe, is when it was founded. Yeah, um, part of the first uh, one of the first divisions formed for the. First World War, the American Expeditionary Force. Um, and, of course, all the way up until this day, they're, of course, called Brig Red One, and also the Bloody First. Um, they actually, like, they're so big, they created their own song. They, like, the First Infantry, if you were part of the First Infantry, especially then, you did a lot of stuff. Um, not as much now, but... So, National Defense Service Medal, again, everybody gets it. Southwest Asia Service Medal, that just means he deployed to Southwest Asia. That's all that means. Army Service Ribbon, you get it when you go to basic. The second you graduate basic training, that is the first ribbon you get put on. And the Kuwaiti Liberation Medal, that again, that was from him being in Kuwait during well, Desert liberate. Storm. So everybody that was there during the liberation got that. So nothing here is really special. Like Ben and I could go deploy right now. And if we stopped a, an act from happening, like a, our unit is sitting there and we stop somebody from attacking a village. Boom. Bronze star medal. Yeah, that that's how we, easy we, it is we, to get. Um, one quick thing before we move on, uh, the I looked it up. I just did a quick look up the maximum range for a twenty-five Mike Mike cannon. That's a part of a Bradley. Is the max range is now this is max range. Um, is two point three miles. So as much as it sounds a BS, um, it's possible. He could have actually hit it. 500 yards, that would have been really close comparatively where this thing can go. And the Iraqi army, for all intents and purposes, really didn't put, in some areas, they really didn't put up much of a fight. So him actually shooting that tank, which is a, t a T-72, which was the main tank they used there, um, uh, Bradley could actually penetrate that. It's not like a straight uh, HE salvo, ra uh, salvo well, I round or something going through. But, I mean, granted, the Iraqi army really didn't have much of a, of a fight, stomach for this fight, so he could have actually surrendered. So now, it's, not, it's not the it's not the, the tank one that I'm questioning. It's 
decapitating an Iraqi soldier from 1,100 yards. Oh yeah, that. no, I don't buy that. I don't buy that one. For There's a no fucking way. Yeah, th that would have to be the most lucky shot on. Oh Earth. yeah. But in all, he's more likely to just blast the Iraqi into little bit, little yeah. bits, and take his head off. No, yeah. no, no. That's no. I agree on that. But no, hitting the hitting the tank with a cannon at that five hundred years. Yeah, that's so. That's very doable. And keep in mind, everybody, we're talking. This was when we were fighting with Iraqi soldiers. Obviously, over Operation Enduring Freedom and all of that, we developed a good relationship. Or an okay relationship with the Iraqi army and things like that, where they gave us translators. We helped train them, things like that. But during operation desert storm, it was an all out war between the two of us. Yeah. Um, so McVeigh aspired to join the United States army special forces after returning from the Gulf war. So he so Operation Desert Storm immediately chain, transferred into the Gulf War. Um, after returning from the Gulf War, he entered the selection program, but withdrew on the second day of the 21-day assessment and selection course for Special Forces, telling other recruits that he injured his ankle. However, in a letter to his superiors, Mavay wrote that he was not physically ready. He decided to leave the Army and was honorably discharged in 1991. So, when I tell you... Oh, yeah. But, but, when I tell you that the selection course, which this all the selection course does, it does not guarantee you a spot in special forces. The selection course allows them to pick you to start training to be picked. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I have no, I've never had aspirations for special forces. I've never, and I probably would never pass it either, but at the same time... For me, I never joined. Like, like, how do how do you jo I, join I, I and then bitch out? I, I guarantee you, Timothy McVeigh didn't do any kind of physical training for this. He probably no. just signed up and thought he would be Johnny Badass and he'd be good to go. So I will say, when I first enlisted uh, in 2011, I my plan was to enlist. Um, and for those that are new. Ben and I both served in the Air Force active duty. Um, we were security forces, which is military police. Um, when I first signed, I was going to and was getting ready to sign TACP, which is Tactical Air Control Party. For those that don't know, Tactical Air Control Party is a member of special forces for the Air Force. They basically jump into a hot site, parachute down. They, what's called paint a target, which is using laser designators to call in an airstrike. That's what TACP is known for. Um, and that's what I was going to do, but the wait time, I would have had to wait in depth for another year. And I was like, I don't want to wait another year. I want to go now. So then that's when I chose security forces. And choice. technically, if you want to get technical, and our, our veteran listeners are going to hate me for saying this, but if you want to get technical, security forces is considered special forces of the Air Force. No, they're not. Yes, not they are. Yes, they are. 
Just because we get a beret, dude, does that make us special? No, they are. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying that we should be classified as special forces, but the designation when security forces was created, because my grandfather was part of the first units of that. Before my grandfather became a loadmaster, he was air police. Um, and when he was in, they were considered special forces. And then of course they uh, did the then they did the branch off, where you have. Because you had, so for those that don't know, you had two different things. You had, back in the day, you had air police and you had uh, security forces. You had the air police guarded the planes and then your security forces were your MPs. Um, And then, when was it? The 90s? Early 2000s? When they combined the two. Uh, something like that, yeah. They um, they combine the two into security forces, which does both. Yeah. But yeah, when uh, yeah. when it was originally designed, it was listed, and of course, I don't consider us special forces at all. No. But when it was originally designated back in the day, they were considered special yeah. forces. I just say it yeah, to piss off my special forces friends. <laughs> I, I I just run into too many guys who when I was when I was in and you were missile troop so you didn't run you probably didn't run into well you may you probably did um, all those guys who kept trying to say oh we're the infantry of the air force no we're not stop saying that you're just embarrassing yourself in front of the army and the marines so here's the thing so I I did missiles however I was basically on uh, the quote unquote SWAT team yeah so. For those that don't know, there is a part of security forces when you are on a missile field that is called the TRF, that's Tactical Response Force. They are basically, if you were in civilian law enforcement, they would be your SWAT team. They're they're there for if somebody attacks a nuke site, stuff like that. But yes, I did have people that they would deploy and they were like, we're the infantry. Secure, Air Force does not have infantry. No. At all, we're no. That's it's when, embarrassing. When, when you get I, deployed, I for those who think that. when you get deployed, you do one of two things: you're either attached to an infantry unit. That's even rare. Yeah, or you're sitting there guarding a fob. What you do in your home station too? So yeah. nothing changes. No, no, you just get to say, "Oh, I, I got to go to the fucking desert." Yeah, that's exactly what I did. I I deployed out of Ramstein to Kuwait. And I just was like, yay, just doing the exact same thing, except it's just hot as fuck here. I was non-deployable. Lucky son of that a That was bitch. the advantage of being PRP. And, yeah. I mean, and I, one could... Pam, Pam said you two, you two almost got PRP. Yeah, I did. Luckily, they took... Luckily, the commander at the time at Insulic Turkey was... Uh, PRP very, sucks. It, it does. That part of Turkey sucks. Um, but uh, he was very ignorant uh, of what ADHD was. So they're like, you can't be, you can't do that. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> say it ain't so, no. I know the, you, I know dude, the. Uh, you you would have fucking hated PRP. Uh, yeah, I would have. Um, anyway, back to McVeigh. All right, so back to McVeigh after we're done with our ranting, which pro- we're talking about a military member. Our ranting's probably not going to stop. 
Um, Sorry, everybody. Yeah, the these these guys that are members of the military kind of hit close to home with us. Um, it, it, it's a hobby. That's all I say. Yeah, Get a fucking well, hobby. It, you're done. This this is this is an experience that we. So of course, there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there. Um, and I'm not knocking any of them because there are a ton of great ones. There's a few that I listened to that inspired us to do this. Um, however, our, of course, our advantage over them is we have the military and law enforcement experience to talk about what these guys are thinking. Well, try to talk about what they're thinking. McVeigh, there's really no guessing what he's thinking, but... So, McVeigh wrote letters to local newspapers complaining about taxes. Yeah. In 1992, he wrote, Taxes are a joke. He's not lying. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. Truth. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. He's not wrong so far. They mess up. We suffer. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. So far, he's completely honest. He would have a heart attack today. Uh, to yeah, be, I almost can't feel like. I wonder what he would say if today. Have, if he was, <laughs> we would today. have another bombing. Uh, is a civil war imminent? Okay. Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? Probably. I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. I'll be completely honest. Reading this statement, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, yeah. He's questioning it, it, our taxes, which we all are doing now. He's questioning the government, which we're definitely doing now. Is a yeah. civil war imminent? That's a question no. I would ask. I doubt it, but anyway, we're not getting to that. We're not going down that turn in the trail. The, do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? Probably. Um, but yeah, it's like government, he's talking about government oversights and things like that, which we're still dealing with to this day. Yeah. Um, McVeigh also wrote to representative John J. LaFouche, um, of New York complaining about the arrest of a woman carrying mace. It is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. Firearms restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is mace is it mace still illegal in New York? Uh, so it New York is, City, I know. Throughout the state, it depends on what you're. It's not so much. The, it used to be the size, but now it's um. What type? Now, obviously, there's different types of mace, so... You can have mace, but not OC spray. Um, I'm not sure about that. I know somebody got in trouble because... First of all, this this was some years ago. This is 92. Um, well, no, this is as I'm talking about. Uh. So, back in the early 2000 or whatever I read, um, lady had... I don't. I think she thought she was getting mugged, but I think it turned out she wasn't. She just overreacted. She got bear mace. Yeah, that and, nobody should have except corrections officers. Yeah, and then she just some. And then I think she, either someone tried to rob her, or she mistook this guy getting really close to her for doing something, and she just like spun around and like got him a full thing of face of bear mace, and more or less melted his face. 
Yeah. That's how strong that stuff is. Bear Mace is not fun. She um, got arrested and charged with, like, assault and some other stuff. So I was like, yeah, I, I don't know what you were thinking, lady. Yeah, so now this, again, he's not wrong. So, and as law enforcement officers, and I know active law enforcement officers that condone the Second Amendment, because, just like you said, cops cannot be everywhere at all times. Sometimes you have to protect yourself. Um, I am all for the Second Amendment. I love my guns. I carry a gun with me every day. Um, ben, and, uh, ben and Pam were just talking with me when they were down here about they can't wait to move down here and finally get to carry because they can't do it in New York. I just don't feel like taking a bank loan out to yeah. do it. And Kentucky and Ohio, where we are, you don't have to have a concealed carry permit. It's a right-to-carry state. Um, McVeigh later moved with Nichols to Nichols' brother James's farm around Decker, Michigan. While visiting friends, McVeigh reported reportedly claimed that the army had implanted a microchip in his buttocks so that the government could keep track of him. That's what that peanut butter shot is. <laughs> uh, McVeigh worked long hours in a dead-end job and felt that he did not have a home. I feel that. He sought romance, but his advances were rejected by a co-worker and he felt nervous around women. He believed that he brought too much pain to his loved ones. He grew angry and frustrated at his difficulties in finding a girlfriend. He took up obsessive gambling. Unable to pay gambling debts, he took out a cash advance and then defaulted on his repayments. He began looking for a state with low taxes so that he could live without heavy government regulation or high taxes. He became enraged when the government told him that he had been overpaid $1,058 while in the army and had to pay back the money. He oh, I can understand this. They I do this. this. They do this all the time, oh, which is bullshit. It's bullshit. He wrote an angry letter to the government saying, go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity, feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. At this point, I don't usually condone this, but we probably would have all been better off if he would have just unalived himself. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of innocent men, women, and children. I think would agree to this, and the and their families as well. Yeah, I can very much understand this frustration. This is the definite BS. I've seen it happen. But his course, his the course he sets himself on at this point is unforgivable. It it doesn't justify this. Yeah, just doesn't justify. McVeigh introduced his sister to anti-government literature, but his father had little interest in these views. He moved out of his father's house and into an apartment that had no telephone. This made it impossible for his employer to contact him for overtime assignments. He quit the NRA, National Rifle Association, believing it was too weak on gun rights. That's saying something, because the NRA is very heavy Second Amendment. Yeah, I'm, par I'm part of the NRA. I, I find it very odd that he would, for a guy who seems to, he's having some financial difficulty, I, I find it a little odd he would not want overtime. I would be clamoring for overtime. Oh, yeah. That's just, that's just me, though. Oh, yeah. So, in 1993, 
McVeigh drove to a little town that we know called Waco, Texas, during the Waco siege to show his support. At the scene, he distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, When guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. That's funny. I used to have a shirt that said that. <laughs> but Careful. I used to have a shirt that said that. Now, I will say that's that it's not a... That saying isn't something that is necessarily terroristic or anything like that it is a very it's second amendment showing, yeah it's just showing support for the second amendment nothing wrong with that um the government uh he told a student reporter the government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times once you take away the guns you can do anything to the people you give them an inch, and they take a mile. I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. For the five months following the Waco siege, McVeigh worked at gun shows and handed out free cards printed with Lon Haruchi's name and address in the hope that somebody in the Patriot movement would assassinate the sharpshooter. Haruchi is an FBI sniper, and some of his official actions have drawn controversy, specifically shooting and killing of Randy Weaver's wife while she held an infant child. McVeigh wrote hate mail to Haruchi, suggesting that what goes around comes around. McVeigh later considered putting aside his plan to target the Mura building to target Haruchi or a member of his family instead. McVeigh became a fixture on the gun show circuit, traveling to 40 states and visiting about 80 gun shows. He found the, f the further west he went, the more anti-government sentiment he encountered, at least until he got to what he called the People's Socialist Republic of California. McVeigh sold survival items and copies of the Turner Diaries. One author said, in the gun show culture, McVeigh found a home. Though he remained skeptical of some of the most extreme ideas being bandied, bandied around, he liked talking to people there about the United Nations, the federal government, and possible threats to the American liberty. Uh, just to give you all a, um, a little background what the Turner Diaries are. Turner Diaries are a is a novel that was written by uh, William Luther Pierce um, under a pseudonym. But um, it is basically white supremacist fiction it talks about uh overthrowing the federal government a race war that leads to the extermination of all minorities and jewish people um liberals and we're, we're talking about like wholesale holocaust of this type of thing and it's very it's it's portrayed as very pro-nazi pro-white supremacy uh, in many cases of during the 80s and early 90s when a lot of like everything from small scale organized white supremacist attack to lone wolf attacks by white supremacists, many of them would 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 recount reading the Turner Diaries and finding inspiration from them. So it, it is the terrorist Bible. <laughs> more the, or less. The KKK yes. Bible. Yeah. It is a work of fiction, like, but the guy who wrote it and everybody who champions his book is 
these are pieces of shit who basically think it's okay to like see a minority person or like a black person hispanic and just run them over your car yeah and that's okay and this and it's 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 a piece i i've read synopsis of it and obviously i've never read the book i, I it's like reading mind Kampf. it really is it's just like you you really i just read the the wikipedia like you feel dirty reading it yeah it's like God, why did i read like i just i kept hearing about it i was like i don't read it and i was like what's the synopsis of wikipedia and i was like oh my god this is horrible shit yeah i i don't I've never read it. I don't know if I ever will. Just don't. Not even the Wikipedia page version of it. Um, but yeah, this the Turner Diaries and this um, have always has been a long-standing um, inspiration for a lot of the government groups. Um, it, many of them. Um, I say probably some of them, uh, the order, which was from 1983 to 84 was a white supremacist, um, organization. They, um, carried out the murder of Alan Berg, who we talked about, I believe in a previous episode, um, uh, briefly, um, uh, the members of the order were inspired to, um, Basically, they read the ter- the Turner Diaries, and they were like, "Okay, this is how we go about doing, go about you know starting this racial holy war." Yeah, uh, with uh, assassinations and stuff. Yeah. Um. So McVeigh had a road atlas with hand drawn designations of the most likely places for nuclear attacks, and considered buying property in Seligman, Arizona, which he determined to be a nuclear free zone. He lived with Michael Fortier in Kingman, Arizona, and the two became so close that he served as a best man at Fortier's wedding. McVeigh experimented with cannabis and meth after first researching their effects in an encyclopedia. Yes, kids, there was a time before Google where we had to look up everything in an encyclopedia. Um, He was never as interested in drugs as Fortier was, and one of the reasons they parted ways was that McVeigh grew tired of Fortier's drug habits. I'm going to tell you right now, as a person who used to work with nuclear weapons, obviously I cannot say where they are, but I will tell you, Arizona is not a nuclear-free zone. There are very few nuclear-free zones in the U.S. If there is a nuclear attack in the future... You better find a fucking bunker somewhere. Because so, what you're saying is, don't go to Arizona. Hey, yes. What I'm saying is, you better go to the backwoods of like Appalachians, which we're clo- Wisconsin. We're close enough we to-, to the Appalachians. Yeah. Do we have? To- can we go to Wisconsin? Pam- My wife is from Wisconsin. She always said that Wisconsin survives everything. So I don't know if it would survive that. Oh, I mean, okay. it did survive Aaron Rodgers, so. Yep, that's true. Survived better than his ankle did. Woo! Sorry, Jets fans. <laughs> sorry, Jets fans. Too soon? Don't Dude, care, I, I watched, fans. I'm sorry, but I watched, I, there was a joke today that somebody said, you know, I saw Aaron Rodgers got injured. That's the second Jet to go down on 9-11. <laughs> For the love of God, tell me you can edit that. 
I'm not editing it. I'm sorry, but I thought that was hilarious. We're we're far we're far enough away, and everybody knows that we respect 9/11 and everything that happened. But that joke was hilarious. We're gonna have to find the charity. <laughs> um, but I thought it was so. Fu- hey, if if Pete Davidson can joke about his father dying in 9/11 and everybody be okay with it. I can I can do that. And his father was a freaking hero. I hate Pete Davidson, but um He's just not funny. But yeah, so I thought that was hilarious. Um and then everybody sharing videos of uh of his season this year and it was just him running out with the flag and that was it. Um so, in April 1993, McVeigh headed for a farm in Michigan where former roommate Terry Nichols lived. In between watching coverage of the Waco siege on TV, Nichols and his brother began teaching McVeigh how to make explosives by combining household chemicals and plastic jugs. The destruction of the Waco compound enraged McVeigh and convinced him that it was time to take action. He was particularly angered by the government's use of CS gas on women and children. He had been exposed to the gas as part of his military training and was familiar with the, f- the effects. The disappearance of certain evidence, such as bullet-riddled steel and reinforcement front door to the complex, led him to suspect a cover-up. CS gas. Care Every- gas. Everybody that goes into basic training is required to go through the gas chamber. It is the worst day of your life in basic training. Um, you will have liquids coming out of every orifice of your face and the the amount will surprise you too yeah i oh my god it was hell on earth um i every time i think about it my nostrils start to burn so and the worst part is is they make you shave the night before a fresh shave so it all gets into the the pores of your skin and god it sucks the women were lucky yes. with that one. Yeah. Um, well, some of them had to shave too, but... <laughs> um, McVeigh's anti-government rhetoric became more radical. He began to sell Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm and Explosives ATF hats riddled with bullet holes and a flare gun that he said could shoot down an ATF helicopter. He produced videos detailing the government's actions at Waco and handed out pamphlets with titles such as U.S. Government Initiates Open Warfare Against American People and Waco Shootout Evokes Memory of Warsaw 43. Um, And for those that do not know, Warsaw 43 is the uprising of a Warsaw ghetto in Poland. Um, It was Jewish resistance during their German-occupied Poland in World War II. I find it very ironic that a bunch of a pseudo, a bunch of quasi-white supremacists are invoking Jewish yeah. fighters like, fighting off Nazis is their, like, battle cry or whatever. Like, were they n- not anti-you? <laughs> uh, that was what Warsaw 43 a, was. Kids, this is where, where um, it comes in handy to have a pay attention in school because if they had realized it they would have realized wait a minute we're we're supporting the people who against the people that we like yeah exactly 
He began changing his answering machine greeting every couple of weeks to various quotes by Patrick Henry, such as, Give me liberty or give me death. Um, apparently he's back in colonial times. Uh, is this what the kids call being extra or something, what they call oh. Because he's like, he's going way off, like, way out of his way to do this. It's like, dude, take a chill pill. Yeah, and for those history, those history deficient, uh, Patrick Henry, of course, was politician. He was one of our founding fathers and the first and sixth governor of Virginia. Um, and, of course, his famous saying is, give me liberty or give me death. As what he's most known for, um, and then he followed was followed uh, by Thomas Jefferson in office. Um, he began experimenting with making pipe bombs and other small explosive devices. The government imposed new firearms restrictions in 1994, which McVeigh believed threatened his livelihood. Yeah, and I believe. It was the federal ban on assault weapons. Um, so it was the large capacity mags, things like that. Um, and that was from the president that he absolutely hated, President Clinton. Um, McVeigh disassociated himself from his boyhood friend Steve Hodge by sending him a 23-page farewell letter. He proclaimed his devotion to the United States Declaration of Independence, explaining in detail what each sentence meant to him. McVeigh declared that those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason, are domestic enemies, and should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it stands for in every bit of my heart, soul, and being. I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, Steve. I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil, free men versus socialists want to be slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. What would you say if I sent you a letter that said that? Uh, I mean, that's kind of, I, I'm a little worried that, but at the same time, I'd probably be very confused as to why you just decided. <laughs> I, I would be very, I, I'd probably spend like the next 10 minutes being like, did we even go to war? Is there some war been declared? And I'm just not aware of it because it really just seems like he's, he's going off to war. diving. In. Yeah, he's going. He's like diving deep into his own. I, I don't want to say fan fantasy sounds wrong, but it really is the only thing I can think of. It's like he's going into these fantasies about what's well, what he thinks is going on in the world, and he's just going. He's nose diving right into him. It's like. Like, this isn't the Civil War where, you know, one brother is going to go fight for the North and one's going to fight for the South. Yeah. This is, you know, this is just regular life. He's just not handling it very well, obviously. So McVeigh felt the need to personally uh, reconnoiter sites of rumored conspiracies. 
He visited Area 51 in order to defy government restrictions on photography and went to Gulfport, Mississippi to determine the veracity of rumors about the UN operations. These turned out to be false, of course. The Russian vehicles on the site were being configured for use in UN-sponsored humanitarian aid efforts. Around this time, McVeigh and Nichols began making bulk purchases of ammonium nitrate and agricultural fertilizer for resale to survivalists since rumors were circulating that the government was preparing to ban it. So for those that don't know, back in this time, we had procured a bunch of defunct Russian vehicles um, and we were doing just this. We were reconfiguring them, fixing them up, removing Russian stuff, putting in American stuff to get them ready for humanitarian aid efforts to be able to carry supplies, medical supplies, food and stuff like that to countries that were part of the UN. Um, but the rumor always was is that we were working alongside Russia and Russia was staging here. Um, okay. Yeah. Like that would ever happen. So, um, also to clarify everybody as to why Timothy McVeigh sent this really like a 23 page goodbye letter to his friend, Steve Hodge. So in the months leading up to this, Timothy McVeigh tried to like reach out to everybody to try and bring him, bring them into his world, and he reached out to his childhood friend Steve Hodge, and Steve Hodge just wasn't buying. Was said you're fucking nuts. Yeah, so this is where the whole apology letter and saying like blood will be spilled. I hope it's not yours, my friend. Yeah, uh, it's like oh god, I. To me, like I, I, in my life, I've I've had the I've never encountered like Timothy McVeigh crazy, but I've always seemed to have attracted the the whack jobs every now and again, and they always seem to come to me, and I can never I, I could never explain to it. So I can only imagine Steve Hodge is like, oh god, why did I be why was I nice to that guy so many years ago? See, now he's trying to gotta be nice a revolution. You gotta be nice to the quiet kid in the school. It's like Dane Cook always gives the kid the Snickers. Yeah. So, McVeigh told Fortier of his plans to blow up a federal building, but Fortier declined to participate because he wasn't that fucking nuts. Fortier also told his wife about the plans. McVeigh composed two letters to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF. The first entitled Constitutional Defenders and the second ATF Read. He denounced government officials as fascist tyrants and stormtroopers. That was hey. If the ATF were stormtroopers, they wouldn't have shot that lady. They wouldn't have been able to hit they her. Would... Yeah. <laughs> um, ATF, all you tyrannical motherfuckers, will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous actions against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg War Trials. McVeigh also go go ahead, Ben. I was just about to say, the Nuremberg War Trials. Where Nazis and white guys who were white supremacists were hung, or hang, or excuse me, were hanged for their crimes against minorities. For the love of God, I understand. Of them? The, yeah, I, I, I understand 
the Niagara County School Board ain't the best in the world, but for the love of God, did do you are they not teaching history there? This is the second thing where he's going against the white supremacist, claiming he's a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, McVeigh also wrote a letter to recruit a customer named Steve Colbert. Colbert, not Colbert, because I love Steve Colbert. I was I got I, I love him. That. I was like, Steve Colbert, no. No, I love Steve Colbert. Steve Colbert, if you ever somehow hear this, we would love to have you on and play D and D with you because you do play D and D. Um, so we would we would love to talk to you. Um, but no, Stephen Colbert, a man with nothing left to lose is a very dangerous man, and his energy anger can be focused toward a common righteous goal. What I'm asking you to do then is sit back and be honest with yourself. Do you have kids, a wife? Would you back out at the last minute to care for the family? Are you interested in keeping your firearms for their current future monetary value? Or would you drag that 06 through rock swamp and cactus to get off the needed shot? I, in short, I'm not looking for talkers. I'm looking for fighters. And if you are a fed, think twice. Think twice about the Constitution you're supposedly enforcing. Isn't enforcing freedom an oxymoron? Kind of. And think twice about catching us with our guard down. You will lose just like Deegan did, and your family will lose. McVeigh began announcing that he had progressed from the propaganda phase to the action phase. He wrote to his Michigan friend, Gwenda Strider, I have certain, I have certain other militant talents that are in short supply and greatly demanded. McVeigh later said he considered a campaign of individual assassination with eligible, eligible targets who included Attorney General Janet Reno. Judge Walter Smith Jr. of Federal District Court, who handled the Branch Davidian trial. Lon Harichi, a member of the FBI hostage rescue team, who shot and killed Vicki Weaver. Um, he said he wanted Reno to fully accept to full to accept full responsibility in deed, not just words. Such an assassination seemed too difficult, and he decided that since federal agents had become soldiers, he should strike at them at their command centers. According to McVeigh's authorized biography, he decided that he could make the loudest statement by bombing a federal building. After the bombing, he was uh, ambivalent about his act and the deaths that he caused. As he said in letters to his hometown newspaper, he sometimes wished that he had carried out a series of assassinations against police and government officials instead. Now. We are now getting into the Oklahoma City bombing. Some stuff may go back and forth on what we talk about because we started off with Timothy McVeigh, so it may talk about some repeated stuff. But most of this is going to be Oklahoma City bombing. This is going to be the chunk of the podcast, so this part will be split up into two. Um, I mean, it's safe to assume at this point for... Timothy McVeigh has gone off the reservation. He is a he can't very see the reservation. Eh, he's on his own planet at this point, honestly. Really being honest with each other. Um this is 
I mean, this is a broken man who think who's found who think who's found a cause, and there's nobody there to um kind of steer him away from his course of action. Um, he is reaching, as you can see, like he is reaching out to everybody who he can think of to kind of go with him on this journey of radicalism. And anybody who doesn't is just now they're more or less enemies to him. And he is, it, this is a, a danger why a lot of these militant survivalists, extreme ultra right wing and even left wing um, organizations target veterans because very often, and I'm sure Caleb will back me up on this, very often after we get out of the military, you lose a, you lose a bit of sense of purpose. So you kind of drift. Some cases is for a little bit. Some cases, people keep drifting until the day they die. Yeah, and it, and many of them liked. And Timothy McVeigh was, I, I personally believe Timothy McVeigh was kind of a was a bit of a piece of shit before oh, all this yeah. went down. This just didn't help. No, this didn't help matters. I mean, uh, he's literally giving shit details to African American soldiers just because he doesn't like black people. That's that's a shitty thing to do. Yeah. He's doing that when he's in the army. When he uh, has a purpose. And so, like, my personal experience, and I just had a job interview today that I was talking about this, is we get out of the military, and like Ben said, we don't always know our purpose. We spend so long in a uniform, people telling us what to do, that you get out and you're kind of lost. Some people find it right away. You'll find a lot of guys that go right into law enforcement, such as I did. Um, then there's other guys that they bounce around. They And unfortunately, that's where a lot of the veteran homelessness comes from. They bounce around, they find drugs, they do all of this, but not everybody bombs a federal building. Um, so... The Oklahoma City bombing was a domestic terrorist truck bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on April 19, 1995, the second anniversary of the fiery end to the Waco siege. It was the deadliest act of terrorism in U.S. history until September 11th attacks in 2001 and remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in the U.S. history and the second deadliest overall. Perpetrated by two anti-government extremists and white supremacists, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, the bombing occurred at 9.02 a.m. and killed 168 people, injured 680, and destroyed more than one-third of the building, which had to be demolished. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 other buildings within a 16-block radius shattered glass in 258 buildings, and destroyed 86 cars, causing an estimated $652 million worth of damage. Local, state, federal, and worldwide agencies engage in extensive rescue efforts in the wake of the bombing. FEMA, 
Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, which we typically see them natural disasters. Uh, I'm from Florida. I'm very well acquainted with FEMA because of the hurricanes. Um, they activated 11 of their urban search and rescue task forces, consisting of 665 rescue workers who assisted in rescue and recovery operations. Within 90 minutes of the explosion, McVeigh was stopped by Oklahoma Highway Patrolman Charlie Hanger for driving without a license plate and arrested for illegal weapons possession. And you know what's funny? It's Charlie Hanger, of course, is now famous because of catching Timothy McVeigh. He had no idea who he caught at that point. It was just a guy with guns. <laughs> and then, could you imagine arresting this guy and then it comes out and they're like, yeah, the, this guy just committed that terrorist act. As that cop, my heart would be pounding after the fact because this guy could have fucking killed me. He just bombed all these people. Yeah, it's it's a little surreal. I mean, oh, and of course, then he probably once the shock was up, he was like, yeah, or. Man, if only That's he would have. Or man, if he only would have pulled a gun on me. Well, um, there's that, too. Probably, so, yeah. So think about this though: if he would have had a license plate on his vehicle, he probably would never have gotten caught, at least yet. You know, there is just so many stupid things that will get a person killed. Now, one thing that I hope, I hope at some point we'll cover uh, if we ever do another terrorist arc. Um would be the first World Trade Center bombings were actually ha occurred within, I believe it was 91? Yes, 92? 91. One of the early 91. That's why, that's why the uh, the ones that we all remember were done in 2001. Because it, yes. it was the 10 year. Um, so, the, the first World Trade Center bombing was done by a truck bombing in the parking garage of the World Trade Center. They drove it into the truck, you rented a U-Haul van, dro packed it with explosives, drove it to the bottom. It went up, killed people. The terrorist, who obviously he didn't hang around for that, he actually tried to go back to the U-Haul company where he rented the truck to get his deposit back. <laughs> Keep in mind. FBI had already identified the vehicle. They're like, huh, this is this thing was rented. This is this is obviously a fake name. We'll keep an eye on it, but who's that dumb to uh um, Nobody's gonna come to back. Go we'll back never to, catch him like this. In walks the terrorist, I don't know his name. Um he just shows up and he just is like, I would like my truck is gone. Can I get the deposit back? I can just imagine there was probably the U-Haul clerk was there. He probably called the FBI and was like, you're never going to believe it. 1993. Oh, it was three. I thought it was three. February 26, 1993. And it was Ramsey uh, Yeah, I believe Ramsey Youssef is now still is still a guest of the U.S. government at this point. I believe he got a life sentence. But, um, um, yeah, I can just imagine the FBI agent who was probably in charge of watching, keeping the tabs on that, thinking, eh, he'll never show up. Holy crap. Let's see, where is he? 
Uh, yes, he is in ADX Florence in Colorado. Oh, so he's in a really deep hole. He, he's, he's in the Supermax. He's in the Supermax. Yeah. Um, For those of you who don't know, that is a prison where you are not allowed to interact with the other prisoners or talk to anybody. Just so you guys know, if you want to see it, Yusef's handcuffs that he was captured with in Pakistan are actually on display at the FBI Museum in D.C. Hmm. So it's pretty cool. Because obviously this was... Hmm. Oh, Ramsey Yusef's now a Christian, though. 2007, oh, that he makes found it Jesus. all better. 2007, he found Jesus, so he'll go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. I... That's what the Bible says. As, as the designated Christian, as, as the designated Christian here, I, I hold some doubt to that, but we'll see. That's between as they as they always used to tell me in Catholic schools. That's between them and God. Yeah, and of course he's connected with Bin Laden. But, um, anyways. So, oops. Um. Within 90, blah, 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 sorry, forensic evidence quickly linked McVeigh and Nichols to the attack. Nichols was arrested and within days both were charged. Michael and Lori Fortier were later identified as accomplices. Um, and for those that are wondering, although they did not participate, McVeigh told him, uh, told both of them about the attack. They did not report it to the federal government. That makes you an accomplice. You are going to prison for that. I yep. I can't tell you how many people I've put in cuffs for something just like that. Um, Nichols was a uh, McVeigh, a veteran of the Gulf War and sympathizer with the U.S. militia movement, had detonated a rider rental truck full of explosives he parked in front of the building. Nichols had assisted with the bomb's preparation, motivated motivated by his dislike for the U.S. federal government and unhappy about its handling of the Ruby Ridge incident in 92 and Waco siege in 93. McVeigh timed his attack to coincide with the second anniversary of the fire that ended the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Um, the FBI, the official FBI investigation known as OK Bomb involved 28,000 interviews 3,200 kilograms of evidence and nearly 1 billion pieces of information. When the FBI raided McVeigh's home... That's it, a lot. Oh, yeah. When the FBI raided McVeigh's home, it found a telephone number that led them to a farm where McVeigh had purchased supplies for the bombing. The bombers were tried and convicted in 97. Sentenced to death, McVeigh was executed by lethal injection on June 11, 2001. Um, what a shame. He never got to see 9-11 happen. Um, in Terry Hot, Indiana, which is not that far from here. Terry Hot's only about three, four hours from here. Just so you know. Um, Nichols was sentenced to life in prison in 2004. Michael and Lori Fortier testified against McVeigh and Nichols. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison for failing to warn the U.S. government. And Lori received immunity from prosecution in exchange for her testimony. And again, I'm going over the ending, but we are going to go more in depth with this. In response to the bombing, the U.S. Congress passed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96, which limited access to habeas corpus in the U.S., among other provisions. It also passed legislation to increase the protection around federal buildings to deter future terrorist attacks. Didn't really work. Um, 
on April 19, 2000, the Oklahoma City National Memorial was dedicated on the site of the Murrah Federal Building commemorating the victims of the bombings. Remembrance services are held every year on April 19th at the time of the explosion. Um, so now we'll kind of dig a little deeper. The chief conspirators, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, met in 1988 at Fort Benning during basic training for the U.S. Army. McVeigh met Michael Fortier as his army roommate. The three shared interests in survivalism. McVeigh and Nichols were radicalized by white supremacists and anti-government propaganda. They expressed anger at the federal government's handlings of 1992 FBI standoff with Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge, as well as the Waco siege, the 51-day standoff that we just talked about. Um... In March 93, McVeigh visited the Waco site during the standoff and again after the siege ended. He later decided to bomb a federal building as a response to the raids and to protest what he believed to be U.S. government efforts to restrict rights of private citizens, in particular those under the Second Amendment. McVeigh believed that the federal agents were acting like soldiers, thus making an attack on a federal building an attack on their command centers. McVeigh later said instead of attacking a building, he had contemplated assassinating Janet Reno, FBI sniper Lon Harucci, um, and a few others. McVeigh claimed he sometimes regretted not carrying out an assassination attempt. And I'll be honest, I wish he would have, because it never would have been successful. You really think that he could have gotten to Janet Reno? She was the attorney general oh, at the time. Not. There's no fucking way. And Lon Harucci was under such investigation that he would have had agents on him at all times. Plus the fact, good luck finding them. And yeah, they don't he, publish it's the a, addresses of... Correct. Like, like, for me, if you if you try and run my name, it comes up and it's all blacked out. Uh, because I was federal my my name gets blacked out um so you can't see my name or address um so that's what would happen he i i wish he would have tried to do the assassination attempts because we wouldn't have lost so many people um he initially intended to destroy only a federal building but he later decided that his message would be more powerful if many people were killed in the bombing McVeigh's criterion for attack sites was that the target should house at least two of these of these three federal law enforcement agencies, the ATF, the FBI, and the DEA. He regarded the presence of additional law enforcement agencies, such as Secret Service or U.S. Marshals, as a, as a bonus. A resident of Kingman, Arizona, McVeigh considered targets in Missouri, Arizona, Texas, and Arkansas. He said in his authorized biography that he wanted to minimize non-governmental casualties so he ruled out Simmons Tower, a 40-story building in Little Rock, Arkansas, because a florist shop occupied space on the ground floor. In December 1994, McVeigh and Fortier visited Oklahoma City to inspect McVeigh's target, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The nine-story building, built in 1977, was named for a federal judge and housed 14 federal agencies, including the DEA, ATF, Social Security Administration, and recruiting offices for the Army and Marine Corps. McVeigh chose the Murrah building because he expected its glass front to shatter under the impact of the blast. He also believed that its adjacent large open parking lot across the street might absorb and dissipate some of the force 
and protect the occupants of near, nearby non-federal buildings. Such a nice guy to consider those people. In addition, McVeigh believed that the open space around the building would provide better photo opportunities for propaganda purposes. He planned the attack for April 19, 1995 to coincide with not only the second anniversary of the Waco siege, but also the 20th anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord during the American Revolution. That's the crazy shit there. Let's go all the way back to the American Revolution. McVeigh and Nichols purchased or stored the materials they needed to manufacture the bomb and stored them in rented sheds. Sorry, they purchased or stole the materials. In August 1994, McVeigh obtained nine binary explosives... Uh, kinestics from gun collector Roger E. Moore and with Nichols ignited the devices outside Nichols' home in Harrington, Kansas. On September 30th, 1994, Nichols bought 40 50-pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer from Mid-Kansas Coop in McPherson, Kansas, enough to fertilize 12.5 acres a farmland at a rate of 160 pounds of nitrogen per acre, an amount commonly used for corn. Nichols bought an additional 50-pound bag on October 18, 1994. McVeigh approached Fortier and asked him to assist with the bombing project, but he refused. McVeigh and Nichols robbed Moore in his home of $60,000 worth of guns, gold, silver, and jewels, transporting the property in the victim's van. McVeigh wrote Moore a letter in which he claimed that the government agents had committed the robbery. Items stolen from Moore were later found in Nichols' home and in a storage shed he had rented. In October 1994, McVeigh showed Michael and his wife Lori Fortier a diagram he had drawn of the bomb he wanted to build. McVeigh planned to construct a bomb containing more than 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer mixed with about 1,200 pounds of liquid nitromethane and 350 pounds of Tovex, including the weight of the 16 55-gallon drums in which the explosive mixture was to be packed. The bomb would have a combined weight of about 7,000 pounds. McVeigh originally intended to use hydrazine rocket fuel, but it proved too expensive. McVeigh and his accomplices then attempted to purchase 55-gallon drums of nitromethane at various NHRA drag race drag racing series events during the season. His first attempt was at the Sears Craftsman Nationals held at Heartland Motorsports Park in Pauline, Kansas. Worldwide Racing Fuels representative Steve Lasor, one of the three dealers of nitromethane, was at his unit when he noted a young man in fatigues wanted to purchase nitromethane and hydrazine. Another fuel salesman, Glenn Tipton of VP Racing Fuels, testified on May 1st, 1997 about McVeigh's attempts to purchase both nitromethane and hydrazine. After the event, Tipton informed Wade Gray of Texas Allied Chemical, a chemical agent for VP Racing Fuels, who informed Tipton of the explosiveness of nitromethane and hydrazine mixture. McVeigh, using an assumed name, then called Tipton's office. Suspicious of his behavior, Tipton refused to sell McVeigh the fuel. The, the next round of the championship tour was Chief Auto Parts Nationals at the Texas Motorplex in Ennis, Texas, where McVeigh posed as a motorcycle racer and attempted to purchase nitromethane on the pretext that he and some fellow bikers needed it for racing. 
but there were no nitromethane-powered motorcycles at the meeting, and he did not have the NHRA competitor's license. Lesore again refused to sell McVeigh the fuel because he was suspicious of McVeigh's actions and attitudes, but VP Racing Fuels representative Tim Chambers sold McVeigh three barrels. Chambers questioned the purchase of three barrels when typically only one to five gallons could be purchased by a top fuel Harley rider, and the class was not even raced that weekend. McVeigh rented a storage space in which he stockpiled seven crates of 18-inch-long Tovex sausages, 80 spools of shock tube, and 500 electric blasting caps, which he and Nichols had stolen from a Martin Marietta Aggregates quarry in Marion, Kansas. He decided not to steal any of the 40,000 pounds of ANFO, which is ammonium nitrate fuel oil, he found at the scene, as he did not believe it was powerful enough. Um, McVeigh made a prototype bomb that was designated detonated in the desert to avoid detection. Later, speaking about the military mindset in which he went about with preparations, he said, You learn how to handle killing in the military. I face the consequences, but you learn to accept it. He compared his actions to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki rather than the attack on Pearl Harbor, reasoning it was necessary to prevent more lives from being lost. Uh, I don't know. I... Anyways. there, There's just no telling what he's thinking. Uh, this is a very lost... Um, really is a lost he, he's a lost person and there was just no at this point there was probably no getting him back yeah on April 14 1995 McVeigh paid for a motel room at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City Kansas the next day, he rented a 1993 Ford F700 truck from Ryder under the name Robert D. Kling, an alias he adopted because he knew an army soldier named Kling with whom he shared physical characteristics and because it reminded him of the Klingon warriors of Star Trek. <laughs> On April 16, 1995, he and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City where he parked a getaway car, a yellow 1997 1977 Mercury Marquis, uh, several blocks from the Murrah Federal Building. The nearby Regency Towers Apartments lobby security camera recorded images of Nichols' blue 1984 GMC pickup truck on April 16th. After removing the car's license plate, he left a note covering, covering the VIN plate that read, Not abandoned, please do not tow. Will move by April 23. Needs battery and cable. Smart. Both men then returned to Kansas. It's really smart, because who's going to tow that? They'll just let it stay there. Yeah, they seem to do that a lot. Just abandoned cars everywhere. I remember seeing that a lot in uh, South Carolina. They were just freaking everywhere, man. All <laughs> On April 17th through 18th, 1995, McVeigh and Nichols removed the bomb supplies from their storage unit in Harrington, Kansas, where Nichols lived, and loaded them into the Ryder rental truck. They then drove to Geary Lake State Park, where they nailed boards onto the floor of the truck to hold the 13 barrels in place, 
and mix the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. Each filled barrel weighed nearly 500 pounds. McVeigh added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay, which he could ignite, killing himself in the process, at close range with his Glock 21 pistol in case the primary fuses failed. During McVeigh's trial, Lori Fortier stated that McVeigh claimed to have arranged the barrels in order to form a shape charge. This was achieved by tamping, which is placing material against explosives opposite the target of the explosion. Um, so he tamp he was tamping the aluminum side panel of the truck with bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer to direct the blast laterally towards the building. Specifically, McVeigh arranged the barrels in the shape of a backwards J. He later said that for pure destructive power, he would have put the barrels on the side of the cargo bay closest to the Murrah building. However, such an unevenly distributed 7,000-pound load might have broken axle, flipped the truck over, or at least caused it to lean to one side, which could have drawn attention. All or most of the barrels of ANNM contained metal cylinders of acetylene, intended to increase the fireball and brissance of the explosion. So, McVeigh's not all there. However, when it comes to this kind of stuff, he's a genius. I mean, this, this, he, he wanted not just to make it go, he wanted to make it nice, bright, and pretty. Yeah. And... To think this way, to do all of this, this takes a military mind. Or somebody that's studied this stuff extensively. I mean, again, he's probably, he's so hyper-focused on this session. Yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing more dangerous in the world than cause. And that's exactly what he is. So, McVeigh then added a dual-fuse ignition system accessible from the truck's front cab. He drilled two holes in the cab of the truck under the seat, while two holes were also drilled in the body of the truck. Um, one green cannon fuse was run through each hole into the cab. These time-delayed fuses led from the cab through plastic fish tank tubing conduit to two sets of non-electric blasting caps, which would ignite around 350 pounds of the high-grade explosives that McVeigh stole from a rock quarry. The tubing was painted yellow to blend in with the truck's livery and duct tape and duct taped in place to make the wall to the wall to make it harder to disable by yanking from the outside. The fuses were set up to initiate through shock tubes. The 350 pounds of Tovex Blastrite gel sausages, which would in turn set off the configuration of the barrels. Of the 13 filled barrels, 9 contained ammonium nitrate and nitromethane, and 4 contained a mixture of fertilizer and about 4 gallons of diesel fuel. Additional materials and tools used for manufacturing the bomb were left in the truck to be destroyed in the blast. After finishing the truck bomb, the two men separated. Nichols returned home to Harrington, and McVeigh traveled with the truck to Junction City. The bomb cost about $5,000 to make, which would be about ten grand now. Um, I think that's where I'm going to stop for this part. 
Um, we'll get into the timelines and the actual day and all of that, and then the aftermath in part two. Um, so, Ben, thoughts so far? Um, as, I, as I was saying before, um, it is surprisingly easy and scary how somebody can go from the military to something like this. Because, and I think this is something that the military needs to work on. Now, again, I think Timothy McVeigh is, is an exception to this. I think he was a piece of shit beforehand. He just went from a manageable piece of shit to a domestic terrorist that was capable and, ca and callous enough to kill hundreds of people and not blink an eye and think it was for this glorious revolution that more or less existed in his head. Um, but nonetheless, if Timothy McVeigh had had a better support system leaving the army, would we be, would we even be talking about this? Would there have been there? Because it seemed like everything started very reasonably. He hates taxes. He doesn't like the attacks on, on the second amendment. There are literally tens of thousands if not more people of all walks of life who feel this way they're not terrorists but somewhere along the line something pushed he was he pushed himself really down a path that gave him purpose this is somebody who i feel like wanted to be special and then he realized he wasn't special yeah and then he was gonna and come hell or high water he was gonna be special and he succeeded. It just cost hundreds of people their lives. I think the lesson here is VA, you need to do your fucking job. Um, as veterans, we know, and you can ask any number of veterans, especially modern veterans, the VA doesn't do what they're supposed to do. The VA doesn't take care of us like they're supposed to. Everybody always says, oh, why don't you go do this with the VA? Why don't you do this with the VA? Listen, the VA does not care. We are just another number to them. They There are numerous cases of them pushing off military members that have mental illnesses. There are a number of cases where they don't provide you the help that you're supposed to get. And unfortunately, this can be the result. Um, as military members, we're highly trained to do a lot of stuff. And unfortunately, when having the wrong mindset, that turns into this. So I think... We really do need to take care of our veterans better. We need to... I personally think that when you discharge from the military, there needs to be a transition period. Whether you're put into transitional housing, whether you are required by law to attend a few classes for transitioning on how to go from military life to civilian life, 
where in that class you talk to a shrink, you do all of that. I think if we get something like that in place, and if there's anybody that's with the VA that wants to help us get something like that set up, Ben and I are all for it. Ben and I will work with you guys because we know what it's like. But we need something that is for the military members that are getting out. They need help transitioning so that this shit doesn't happen again. So. Yeah. Well, with that being said, we will be back with a part two to this wonderful story. Um, so yeah, join us for that. I want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seats, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night.